Good morning, everyone. I'm John Schmidt. I'm the senior pastor here at Centerpoint Fellowship, and I went on a mission trip too last summer. My wife and I did, and two of our sons to Mexico. It's life-changing. Uh, if you've never been a part of a short-term mission trip, we'll find out about how to get involved and also how you can get involved here in the local community. Lots of great opportunities for you here, and we'd love for you to be a part of missions. Today, we are continuing on in our series entitled Living as a Believer in an Unbelieving World. Inside the folder you received and you came in, you'll find an outline that simply, and it's entitled today, Believers Choose Sexual Purity. So if I'm going to live as a believer in an unbelieving world, I'm going to have to choose sexual purity. And today we want to talk with you about what the Bible has to say about sexual purity because it matters. Uh, we're getting our instructions from a letter that Paul wrote to some people in ancient Corinth. We call it 1 Corinthians. It's one of the letters that Paul wrote to these people in Corinth. And Corinth was a sin-soaked city. That's hard to say three times fast, but it was, uh, there was a lot of sin in Corinth. It was a sailing port. It was a place where there was lots of commerce, lots of um, you know, loose living for sailors in the port, and there were uh, temples in the city to all various gods in the Greek pantheon. One of those was Aphrodite, the goddess Aphrodite, and there were at least a thousand prostitutes hired uh, to maintain that facility and to lead people uh, in a form of worship that involved a lot of sexual pleasure and immorality. And it was to that city that God called Paul, and he started a church there. So people came out of sinful lifestyles, became Christians, they formed a church. Fast forward four or five years later, Paul's in another city, Ephesus. Some people come and visit him from Corinth. And he says, hey, how are things going? And they tell him. And they tell him the good, and they tell him the bad. And one of the bad things was there was some sexual immorality that had gotten going inside the church. And so Paul wrote some instructions to them, and today we're going to read those instructions. What will shock you, at least, well, if you read the Bible a lot, it won't, but if you don't read the Bible much, it will shock you how relevant it is. It seems like something that could be written to people at center point today. And I hope that's the way we take it. Will you have a word of prayer with me, please? Lord, I pray that you will bless us as we seek to learn from your word today. Um, we want to know what it has to say about sexual purity. Sexual immorality is a problem in our culture, just like it was in Corinth. And, uh, Father, the people in ancient times needed your word. We need your word. So, Lord, I pray that you'll speak and move me out of the way so we can live as believers in an unbelieving world. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. You'll notice your outline has a lot of blanks on it. If you need a pen to fill in the blanks, you can grab a pen on the way in. Just raise your hand. One of our ushers will bring one to you. Now, unapologetically... Uh, we always teach from the Bible here. In fact, uh, Centerpoint is uh, an independent congregation. We're not affiliated with any denomination, but we are a Bible-believing Christian fellowship. And if you want to know what we believe, you can go to our website, and it's pretty easy to find our beliefs. And we have uh, 10 belief statements that are vital to who we are, and we want people to understand those things. And the first of the 10 belief statements uh, states what we believe about the Bible. And this is the note at the top of your outline. The sole basis here at Centerpoint for our belief is the Bible, not John Schmidt's opinion. I'm a senior pastor, but I'm just a senior pastor. Not your opinion, not the opinion of some Hollywood movie star or billionaire, not the opinion of a politician. Anybody notice, by the way, that politicians occasionally change their mind? Has anybody ever noticed that? Yeah, they occasionally do. And so what's really ironic is sometimes we'll say, well, if it's legal, it must be right. No, there are laws that get passed that are completely wrong. And then they get repealed, and then they get passed again, and somewhere else. And all these things happen, and our culture shifts. What's popular now won't be 20 years from now, but the Bible stands firm because it's God's Word. 
So the sole basis, the center point for our belief is the Bible, the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments. The Bible is God's word to all people in all times. The entire Bible is uniquely God-breathed without error. And please underline this, the final authority of all matter, on all matters of faith and practice. This is our final authority. If you're around center point any amount of time, you'll hear me say this, the Bible's our guide in all matters of faith and practice. And when it comes to sexual, our sexual morality, it matters how we practice our faith. It does, especially if I'm going to be, like Paul said, if I'm going to be a believer living in an unbelieving world. It matters greatly how I conduct myself and what kind of morality I practice. So that needs to be said, because if we don't have the Bible as our standard, we are subject to all kinds of problems and chasing after the wind and something that's constantly shifting. So as believers, what Paul wrote to the believers in Corinth needs to be something that we need to get instruction from because they were living in a sexually immoral culture. And here were some instructions. There are four or five things I want to share with you today. First of all, if you and I are going to be believers in an unbelieving world, we need to remember that believers leave their sinful lifestyles when they come to Christ. Believers leave their sinful lifestyles. To come to Christ means to say, I need a Savior from sin. Sin is rebellion against God, doing the wrong thing when you know you ought to do the right thing, not doing the right thing when you know you should have. Sin. And so believers leave their sinful lifestyles when they come to Christ. Paul wrote to the Corinthians about this, starting with uh, verse 9 of chapter 6. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or thieves or greedy people or drunkards or abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. I mean, this isn't an exhaustive list. It's just a laundry list. I mean, you can keep going. So it doesn't really matter if you were a swindler or a drunk or an adulterer or a homosexual or whatever was going on in Corinth. All that was going on in Corinth. Remember, we started the church and we called you out of that. This is, Paul said, I'm your spiritual father. He's writing to his spiritual children. This is like when my kids would come to me when my boys were in junior high and their friends were all going to go see some PG-13 movie or R movie with, you know, that they weren't ready to handle. And I go, no, you're not going to see the movie. And they go, well, it's not fair. Everybody else is going. I go, well, if everybody jumped off a bridge, would you too? You know, that's what you're supposed to say when you're a parent or whatever, you know. Okay, look. And I would tell them, look, guys, you don't belong to other families. You're a Schmidt boy. You're our boy. And we have standards on these things. Let me remind you who you are. And Paul is reminding the people in Corinth of who they are in Christ. Some of you, look, here's the next sentence, you'll see it. Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. Please underline that. Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. This is who you are now. You're born again believers. You used to live that way. But you were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Note, forgiveness and eternal life are available to all who turn from their sins and come to Christ. Forgiveness and eternal life are available to all who turn from their sins and come to Christ. You know the last hour some people said amen when I read that? You know, this is so anemic. Okay, let me, okay, let's try it again. I really want you to say amen on this if you agree with this, all right? Forgiveness and eternal life are available to all who turn from their sins and come to Christ. Amen. That is our hope. We're a bunch of filthy, rotten sinners who are saved by Jesus. That's who we are. 
We are all sinners and we come to Christ, but we come to Christ to save us from our sin. We don't want to continue on in it. And that's what Paul's reminding them. Hey, don't you remember who you are? You're believers now. Don't go back to your old way of life. Goodness. 1 Corinthians 6, keeping going, verse 12. We're going to continue on. And somebody apparently had been saying, hey, I'm allowed to do anything now. I'm saved by grace. And if Jesus is going to save me by grace, hey, if he's paying the bill for my sins, run up the tab. Let's get seconds. It's on Jesus. Come on, bring it out some more. I'm allowed to do anything. You said Jesus forgives me my sins. So listen to how you answer that. You say I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything's good for you. And even though I'm allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. You can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord, and the Lord cares about our bodies. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the scriptures say the two are united into one, but the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. And some of them apparently gotten back into prostitution because the temple of Aphrodite was right there. Again, that's why we started this with, hey, we're going to base our beliefs on the Bible, not on the law. Do you know it's legal in Las Vegas for people to practice prostitution there? I hope none of us think, well, hey, it's legal in Las Vegas, so if my husband takes a business trip there, it's legal for him to solicit the services of a prostitute. It's good. It's legal. Just because it's legal doesn't make it right. That's never been the case. It was legal in Corinth, and Paul was saying, look, of course that's what they're doing. But you, you were called out of that. We're not going to live that way anymore. You're brand new. And what's this talk about, hey, well, it's okay. It doesn't matter what I do with my body in the Greek philosophical set there. There were people who were teaching, well, your soul is what goes on to heaven anyway, so who cares what happens to your body? As long as your soul isn't tainted by this. Paul's reminding them, your soul is in your body. And this is nothing but hypocrisy. And the rest of the culture is going to look at you and go, what's this? I mean, if I'm going to live as a believer in an unbelieving world, yet I'm spending all my time looking at porn I'm cheating on my spouse. People go, oh, yeah, you want to come to church with me? Yeah, I live just the same as I do, but now I have to go to worship services too? I mean, no thanks. I don't need any of this. And that's what the people in Corinth were dealing with. Same thing we deal with. And Paul says, he's reminding them, hey, you used to be that way. And so this is a fatherly talk to his kids. That's not who we are. Tell them, you don't need to fool with this stuff. This will damage you. You need to run. And this is the next point, life application. We must run from sexual sin. When I sat my boys down, I told them all that too. You need to run from sexual sin. And people tell me, well, John, I mean, I don't know. That's just how you interpret scripture. Well, let me read this passage and see how you interpret it. Run from sexual sin. (laughs) I'm open to other interpretations, please. I mean, run from sexual sin. That's literally what it says. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You don't belong to yourself. For God, he bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. They were living in a town where there are temples to gods and goddesses all over the place. Hey, you know what God you worship? You don't worship Aphrodite. You don't worship Zeus. You worship the creator God of the whole universe. Your body is his temple. 
You wouldn't go defile the, the temple of these gods down the street. Why would you defile your body? If you're going to live as a believer in an unbelieving world, mean what you say and say what you mean. I mean, before when I read that list about those who indulge in sexual sin, worship idols, commit adultery, male prostitutes, practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy people, drunkards, abusive, I used to have to remind people, hey, there's no one sin in there that stands out more. It was just a laundry list. So you can't single out homosexuals and say they're worse sinners than everybody else. Now I have to say, this is a laundry list. Don't single out homosexuals and say this isn't sin anymore just because it's legal in a lot of places. Sin is sin. Sin is sin. Drunkenness is sin. Being a swindler is sinful. Adultery is still sin. No matter how many times we see it on the screen in the movies. And Paul says that's not who we are anymore. And so he's writing a letter to, for the people to take back. Well, tell them this. You need to run from this. This will destroy you. You lose all your credibility and it'll damage you. Don't play with this stuff. So what would Paul say to the people of Centerpoint today? Run from sexual sin. This will destroy your credibility. It'll destroy you. The Holy Spirit lives in you, so now you're going to take your body, the temple of the Holy Spirit, and join it to a prostitute? You're going to take the Holy Spirit and inside of you and look at porn? Adulterous relationship? All the other sins that are listed here? Hmm. Never. So believers, when they become believers, leave their lives of sin. Secondly, point B, according to Paul, believers don't claim to be followers of Christ and deliberately practice sexual immorality. <clears throat> you can put in flagrantly, intentionally, now again, I have to be clear here because the minute I read a passage or I talk about this, people go, oh, so you're saying if someone commits adultery, they can never be forgiven. You're saying if someone's a drunkard, they can never be forgiven. You're saying if someone practices homosexuality, they can never be forgiven. That's not what I said at all. Paul said that some of you were like that. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is you can't claim to be a Christian but continue on and say, I want to be forgiven without repenting. I want the new life of Christ but hang on to my old life. That you can't do. And so don't claim to be a Christian and claim to say, but I didn't change. I want to be converted without changing. Well, then it means nothing. I can hardly believe the report. There was sexual immorality going on in the church in Corinth, and this was kind of a shocking story, but it was happening. These guys sit down with Paul and tell him what's going on. He says, well, I can hardly believe what I'm hearing here. The report about sexual immorality going on among you, something that even the pagans don't do. I mean, even the people in Corinth were shocked about this. Here they're supposed to be living a righteous life, and they're actually doing something that even the Corinthians would find shocking. I'm told that a man in your church is living in sin with his stepmother. Incest. You're so proud of yourselves. You should be mourning in sorrow and shame. You should remove this man from your fellowship and hand him over to Satan so his sinful nature will be destroyed and he himself will be saved on the day the Lord returns. You're boasting about this. It's terrible. Don't you realize this man is, this, this is sin, and this sin is like a little yeast that spreads throughout the whole batch of dough? I mean, here there were people there, apparently this guy is having a relationship. He's moved in with his stepmom. We don't know the circumstances. Maybe his dad, 
Maybe his mom had died, or maybe his dad had gotten divorced and remarried somebody. Maybe he'd remarried a trophy wife, 20 years younger, gone through a midlife crisis, married a real Corinthian bombshell. And she was about the same age as his son. And maybe the two of them fell in love, and now they're living together. And the whole time, they're in church, and everybody's, they're all applauding themselves and saying, we're so tolerant. We're so open-minded. We're so nice. We're so intellectual. Only closed-minded bigots would turn their back on them. These are two consenting adults doing what they want in the privacy of their own home. Who are we to say anything? And Paul says, well, you're Christians. You left your life of sin. That's who you are. This is no kindness. This is perversion. And it's wrong. You don't need to pat yourself on the back for this. You need to remove this man. Say, look, this is a fellowship for believers. We're trying to be believers in an unbelieving world. And you're acting like a way that the Corinthians are even shocked. In such a way they're even shocked. So he says, you need to remove him. I mean, when a believer is removed from fellowship, there's a note here that's called church discipline. But the reasons given in Scripture are two. One is so that the offender will repent. Repentance of the offender and protection for the church. Repentance for the offender and protection for the church. To hand someone over to Satan means to let them run. This guy wants to live such a piggish lifestyle, then let him live that lifestyle. There's a story in in the margin, if you could write Luke chapter 15, the story that Jesus told about a prodigal son. There was once a wealthy landowner who had two sons, and the younger son got tired of waiting for the old man to die. And so one day he went to his dad and said, Hey, old man, I'm tired of waiting for you to die. I want my inheritance now. And because the father loved his son, he gave him half of everything he owned. And, of course, the son went off, and he went to a foreign land. He squandered it on all kinds of sexual immorality and parties and everything else. Eventually, all his money ran out. About the time it did, there was a great famine that hit that foreign country, and the son was left with nothing, and nobody helped him at all. found himself in such a desperate strait. He was working for a farmer, feeding pig slop. He was so hungry, he wanted to eat the pig slop. And then one day, he came to his senses. He went, my goodness, here I am feeding pigs in this foreign land. The lowest hired hand on my dad's farm is far better off than I am here. I'm going back. I'm going to tell my dad, Dad, I was wrong. I'm a sinner. (sighs) Forgive me. I don't even have any right to be called your son. So he headed home, was practicing that speech the whole way home. Jesus said, but while he was still a long way off, his dad ran out to meet him because his dad had been watching for him, hugged him, kissed him, put a new robe on him, ring on his finger, threw a party because his wayward son had come home. That's the heart of God. It's the heart of the church. It's the heart of believers. Hey, you repent of your sin? Come join us. We've all repented of our sins. The church is the fellowship of the people who've already had their belly full of sin. Can I get an amen on that? I don't want to go back to that. If you want to go back to that, well then just keep on going. The rest of us, we're not going back to that. And so to hand someone over to Satan is simply to hand them over to let the devil, if the devil's going to tempt you and drag you into sin, well then go get your belly full and maybe like that prodigal son, one day you'll wake up and you'll come home and realize how foolish this all was. The other reason is to protect 
the church from confusion and division. You allow this guy to keep on sleeping with his stepmom, there's other people who begin to think, well, this is okay. Maybe that's all right. Maybe then, if he doesn't have to change, maybe I can keep on drinking like I used to drink. But you were a drunk. It was ruining your life. I know, but... And the Bible doesn't stand for it. Well, the Bible doesn't stand for what he's doing. The church gets divided and confused. And so Paul says, you need to... You guys need to make up your mind. If you're a fellowship of redeemed people who've repented, then that's, need, that's who you need to be. And that brings us to the next point. Paul went on to say that, look, believers confront each other. If you flip your outline over, they confront each other about sin. We're trying to get rid of sin. Not sinful people. We're all sinful people. We're trying to welcome sinful people. We're not welcoming sin. Paul talks about this. He said, look, when I wrote to you before, this wasn't the first letter he'd written, but it's the first the, the earliest letter that we have, so that's why we call it 1 Corinthians. There's apparently another that, letter that was written, 1 Corinthians 5. When I wrote you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin or are greedy or cheat people or worship idols. You'd have to leave this world to avoid people like that. I meant that you're not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer yet indulges in sexual sin or is greedy or worships idols or is abusive or is a drunkard or cheats people. Don't even eat with such people. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside, but as the scriptures say, you must remove the evil person from among you. And sometimes when you tell people, hey, that person, they're having an adulterous affair. Oh, it's not for me to judge. Well, didn't Jesus say, judge not lest ye be judged? Yeah. Unbelievers. And to say, hey, my sin isn't as bad as your sin. Paul's not saying that at all. In fact, he's saying, I'm not telling you not to associate with people who sin who aren't believers. I'm simply saying, if you're going to have a church, it needs to be a real church. And of course, you have to have standards inside the church. And if people won't agree to the standards, then they don't want to be a part of it. I mean, can you imagine if there was a vegetarian group here in town and I came, showed up their meetings eating a bacon double cheeseburger? And everybody said, well, John, this is a vegetarian meeting. Yeah, I know. I, I like vegetarians. I like most of the food you eat. Well, I mean, but I also like pork and beef and chicken and fish. But other than that, I like salads. I'm crazy about hummus. I want to be a vegetarian. And then I show up at their meetings, and I'm bringing chicken fingers and ribs and all these things. And they're going, John, you can't show up at our meetings bringing all this stuff. And it smells delicious, by the way. Anyway, you can't come. Because what you're doing is you're tempting all of us to violate our convictions. You're causing confusion and division. Vegetarians don't eat pork and beef and fish. If you want to be a vegetarian, give it up. And none of us would sit there and go, how intolerant. I can't believe those vegetarians. Insisting that people can't eat meat. <clears throat> those judgmental people. And yet... If a Christian says, hey, we want to live according to biblical standards, I can't believe those Christians. So judgmental. We're told not to judge. Go tell a vegetarian they're told not to judge about people who eat meat. That anybody can be a vegetarian whether they eat meat or not. It's just if you're one in your heart. I'm a vegetarian in my heart, not in my belly. I mean, it won't work. I mean, we laugh because it's absurd. 
And yet when people say the same thing about Christians, we sit and go, oh, who can argue with that? That's such good logic. It's not logic at all. It's nonsense. And Paul's reminding them of this. Here's another note, by the way. We are loving people like Jesus when we confront each other about sin. Because that's what you'll hear too. If you confront anyone about sin, especially sexual sin, well, all I know is Jesus never judged people. Jesus just loved people and accepted them for who they were. Really? Really. He never, ever confronted anyone about sin, especially about sexual sin. Never told anyone to repent. When people tell you that, there are two scriptures that I've given you here. You can email me. I'll give you many more. That's completely false. That's a lie. A deliberate misinterpretation of scripture. Listen to this passage and you'll see a woman who was caught in sexual sin, it was a sexual sin of adultery, was brought to Jesus one day when he was publicly teaching. The suggestion is she was probably brought there half naked, maybe totally naked. Dropped in front of him, and the people who couldn't stand him wanted to put him in a difficult spot so he would say something foolish and discredit himself. Teacher, they said to Jesus, and you can hear the sarcasm dripping off their lips, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her, what do you say? They kept demanding an answer, so Jesus stood up and said, all right, let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. And then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. And that's where people stop. But that's not where Jesus stopped. Do you know what he said next? Read it with me, please. Go and sin no more. Please underline it. These are the words of Jesus. Not the words of John Schmidt. These are the words of Jesus. Would you say them with me again? Go and sin no more. Jesus said that. Remember the one who just accepted people and would never tell people to stop sinning like the woman caught in sexual sin, the adulteress? You mean he told her to stop sinning? Yes. Well, he didn't condemn her. No, he did not. In fact, he said, where are the people who condemn you? There aren't any. Well, I don't condemn you either. You mean so Jesus could love her and still tell her to go and sin no more? Yes. Jesus wasn't condemning her and still telling her to go and sin no more? Yes. So can I tell a person who is in sexual sin or a drunk or a swindler or a cheat or an abuser to stop sinning and not be judgmental about them? Well, if I'm behaving like Jesus, I can. Because Jesus said that. In fact, I'm behaving like Jesus when I go to a person and confront them about sin. In Luke 17, Jesus also said, this is Jesus, so watch yourselves. If another believer sins, rebuke that person. It does not say, hug that person. Just go give them a hug and say it doesn't matter. So watch yourselves. If another believer sins, rebuke that person. Then if there is repentance, which means turning from sin, forgive them. I'm going to tell you all here, we have misrepresented Jesus completely. Jesus died on the cross for our sins so he could save sinners. 
Jesus loves us. He hates sin. Sin is what nailed him to the cross. He took our sins upon himself. That's why all the wrath of God was poured out on him instead of us. He hates sin. And he came to destroy it once and for all so our sins could be forgiven and we would never have to live like that again. So why in the world would we say, I want to believe in Jesus, I want him to forgive me my sins, but I want to sin more at the same time? Maybe we don't want a relationship with Jesus. Maybe we want to just do enough that we can say, hey, I want to live my life the way I want to live it, but John, how many times do I have to go to church? How much money do I have to put in an offering plate? How many holy wafers do I need to eat on communion day in order that I can live the way I want and still not go to hell? Because I'm not crazy about surrendering my life to Jesus, but I'm really not crazy about going to hell. So what's the minimum I can do and still get into heaven when I die? And if that's the goal, and Paul says that's not what we're selling. We're not selling belief without repentance. We're not selling a Bible that doesn't have give us any instructions. This is our guide in all matters of faith and practice. If you don't want to practice your faith, then don't come here. You want to eat chicken fingers, I'd recommend you not become a part of a vegetarian group. They're pretty picky about that. But why would it be wrong then to tell a believer, look, we're going this way and you're going this way? We're not together on this. Let's not pretend we are. Why would that be wrong? Why would it be judgmental? It's not. You don't have to be a believer. But believers leave their sin at the door. Believers don't claim to be believers and still keep hanging on to their sin. Believers confront each other about sin. And point D, believers warn everyone that God's judgment is coming soon. There will be a judgment day, by the way. This is not just an academic exercise. We will have to give account for how we lived our lives, and we will have to give account for our sins. If our sins are forgiven and paid for by Christ, then they are forgiven and forgotten. But if we stand on our own, then we will stand condemned before God. There will be a judgment day. It is coming. And Paul warned the Corinthians about this too. He said, I don't want you to forget, this is 1 Corinthians 10, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors, speaking about the Hebrews in the wilderness when they were traveling from Egypt to Israel long ago. All of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them. All of them walked through the sea on dry ground. If you weren't with us for our Exodus series last year, when they came out of Egypt, they, if you wonder how did they know where to go, God himself went ahead of them there was a pillar of cloud that would travel in front of them. It was a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night that even lit up the whole camp. And for 40 years, they followed. They knew exactly where to go. When the cloud moved, they would move. When the cloud stopped, they would stop. Led them to places where they could camp in safety, where there'd be water, where there'd be food. God took care of them that way. The pillar of cloud even led them through the Red Sea. The sea parted. Walls of water on either side. They crossed over on dry ground. The Egyptians who were chasing them in chariots to bring them back into slavery, when they got in the middle of it, the walls of water collapsed on them. They all drowned. And there were people who saw those miracles. They saw the cloud. They knew the right way to go. And yet when God told them to obey him, they wouldn't do it. It'd be like a person who had been around church and he had seen people's lives change through Christ. But the woman knows that the Bible, the teachings of the Bible make sense and they're right and they point in the right direction, knew exactly which way to go, but stubbornly would refuse to go that way. 
And Paul's writing to them. He says, I don't want you to forget. There were people in our past that were part of the believing community they were supposed to be. There was no, it was obvious where God was leading them. It was obvious there was power. Yet God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. These things happened as a warning to us so that we would not crave evil things as they did or worship idols as some of them did. As the scriptures say, these people celebrated with feasting and drinking. They indulged in pagan revelry. Welcome to Corinth. And we must not engage in sexual immorality as some of them did, causing 23,000 of them to die in one day. Nor should we put Christ to the test as some of them did and then died from snake bites and known grumble as some of them did and then were destroyed by the angel of death. These things happened to them as examples to us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. We live at the end of the age. These things are a warning to us. God's judgment is coming. And if we know the right way to go, just like the people knew where they were supposed to camp and when to move, they saw the power of God and we've seen the power of God work in other people's lives. Let's get with it today. And he's writing them, dear friends, don't think that this is a joke or this is a game. It's not. These things were written down as a warning to us. Two life applications very quickly. God is graciously giving us time to repent and come home. The prodigal son, the father was waiting for the son to come back. God views us when we're indulging in sin as lost children. He would say, come home. Renounce your sin. Peter, when he wrote this, this would be 20, 30, 40 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. Peter was getting old, and people said to him, Hey, Peter, I thought you said Jesus was coming back. When's he coming? Do you forget your address? <laughs> people laughing. Peter said, No, not really. The Lord isn't being slow about his promise, as some people think. He's being patient for your sake. He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed, but he wants everyone to repent. I mean, who's laughing after that? Another life application. Christ died on the cross to free us from sin, not to free us to sin. And I want to go back to something I said earlier. There are people who will trade on this. You said Jesus was going to die on the cross for all our sins, so I'm going to sin more. Hey, if it's amazing grace, think how amazing it'll be if I sin twice as much. Mm -mm. We renounced our sin because it was destroying us. Paul wrote to Titus, one of his understudies, for the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. And we're instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom and righteousness and devotion to God while we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ will be revealed. Judgment Day has no terror to people who are rightly related to Jesus. When he comes back, we go, come quickly. The Judgment Day holds great terror to people who are playing games with this. I mean, if you've studied, a pop quiz is no big deal. It's a chance to show what you know. If you haven't, terror. And we need to live with righteousness. But please hear this again. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He wants us to repent and turn from sin. Paul's warning to the Corinthians was, look, you used to all, some of you used to be all these things. But you left it. Don't keep it going in your circle here. Get rid of that. Ask people to repent. You're acting like Jesus when you do. Judgment day is coming. 
Why would we allow people to toy around in sin and pretend it's no big deal and that we're okay with that when we don't actually believe that? How can we say we love our friends and not warn them? How can we say we love Jesus and still hang on to sin? I warned my boys about sin. As a pastor, I warn you. And Paul has warned us all. You pray with me, please? Lord, I thank you for the warnings from Paul. I thank you for a stern rebuke. Father, why would we put together an organization and have no values? Why would we have an organization with no convictions and no standards? And why would we pretend that it's no big deal to claim that you forgive us of our sins and yet we're going to hang on to our sins and still keep living as a drunk or an abuser or a sexually immoral person? If the Lord spoke to you about something that needs to change in your life in a moment of silence right now, would you pray about that and say, Lord, I know you know. And Lord, I don't want to be a hypocrite or a phony. Forgive me for my sin. Oh God, I pray for this church. I pray that you will protect us from sexual sin. I don't want anybody here to be confused about it or divided over it. Lord, I pray that you will show us how to help people live their lives in purity and godliness. I pray that you would give us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness and a desire to read our Bibles and know your word for ourselves. If that's your desire, would you pray that and say, Lord, I, I want to know the Bible for myself. And finally, would you pray for one person you know this is running from God? Someone you know who, who's intentionally, flagrantly saying, I don't care. It might be wrong, but I don't care. This is what I want. Would you pray for that person right now that they would turn, that they would repent and come home? God loves them too. Jesus died on the cross for them just like he died for you and me. One person. Pray for him by name. God will hear you. He can hear all of us at one time. They'd come home. Lord, we thank you for the Bible. It's our guide in all matters of faith and practice. Help us read it. Help us live it. Help us love each other. Proclaim the grace of Jesus until you return. Lord, I think you're coming soon. And I pray that we'll be busy about your work when you return. Help us not be slacking. Pray these things in the name of Jesus.